when I was growing up, my grandmother was in a fractional ownership in a chalet, think alpine-looking house, in around Banner Elk, North Carolina. We would go different times of the year to Banner Elk, and, and our family would stay in the chalet, and it was wintertime. You would have toboggans and sleds out on the road if it was summertime, we would either go over to the Wizard of Oz village, which was still around back then. It closed after people kept stealing the yellow bricks from the yellow brick road and the company went out of business, actually. I think they're trying to bring it back, I read recently. And we would do the grass skiing. Have you ever grass skied? You go down a ski slope and instead of wearing skis, you wear what looks like a tank tires, tank tread. It's, it's this weird looking boot with this really odd bottom that has this tank kind of tread on it, and you wear those as you go down the hill. I, I basically fell a whole lot. It, it's not pizza slice for that. You, you just fall down, but that's we did that. And, and one of the things our family did, I, I think we only went once, maybe twice, is in Grandfather Mountain in July, nearly every year, they have the Highland Games. Uh, you remember David Coulter out of our church. Many of you remember David. David would actually go and do Scottish dance there. They would have the Scottish, the, the actual authentic Scottish dance. And, and then they would have these men who, as a child, looked like mountains. They were small mountains with arms and legs. And they would come and they would grab a caber, which looks like a telephone pole. And you kind of grab it underneath and then you throw it into the air. The caber toss, uh, it's uh, caber is Gaelic. I understand, for wooden beam. So here are these Scottish men throwing these huge tree trunks, is what it looks like. And apparently it originated because in Scotland you've got these chasms and they'd have to throw the trees over the chasm. I, I don't think that would have ever been my job, but other people. So it's kind of fun to see men in skirts, <laughs> kilts, uh, throwing these telephone poles around a field. Speaking of carrying something heavy, uh, I was never a Boy Scout, but some of you were. Do you, do you remember how you carry another person? If you're going to carry it with another person, they had this way of interlocking your arms, and so you could kind of make a seat for that person to sit in. I tried that with my Boy Scout friends growing up. It never really worked very well. It was more like a horrible game of Red Rover where the person kept crashing through our seat. But then I learned in the Marines that the easier way to carry somebody is the fireman's carry. Uh, is, uh, you can carry nearly anybody, doesn't matter how heavy they are, through the fireman's carry. You, your skeleton was made to carry or is able to carry many, many pounds. And so you can carry more than your body weight if you can just get that person up onto your shoulder. I remember my dad telling me that he was in a feature-length film. Uh, he played a part of a wife-beating drunk. Uh, we used to say typecasting, but he, he never found that funny. There's a scene in this movie where he, he has to be carried, and the guy carried him, uh, the main character, a fireman's carry style, and apparently he separated some ribs or broke some ribs, and they had to stop that part of the the movie shoot and wait until he healed so they could do it again. I, I can tell you this, um, that sounds pretty painful. But if you've ever carried anything heavy, then you have 
just a little sense of what our Lord Jesus took upon himself in the form of our sin. He carried our sin. Like a fireman who carries someone out of a burning building, Jesus carried us out of a burning life. Like a heavy weight, he picked up our afflictions, our pain, sin-caused, and he slung them all across his powerful back. While he was on earth, he bore the burdens of people whose lives were torn apart by sin. He carried the griefs of people who were demon-possessed or others afflicted by sickness and disease. Those whose lives were nearly destroyed by their own sinfulness. Prostitutes, thieves, even murderers. To the thief who died on the cross next to him, he saved that man saying to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Even while he was dying, he was carrying the burdens of others. Jesus so loved carrying other people's burdens that he chided people who added to others' burdens with their own unbiblical, godless rules that made them believe that God would love them more if they would keep them even though they were still God's enemies. That was while he was on earth. And since he left earth nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus is still rescuing people today. He rescues people whose lives have been set aflame in the fires of sin. He bursts into their lives like a fireman bursts through the door. And he throws them over his strong shoulders and rushes them to a place of safety, of faith and grace and mercy and truth. This is what Jesus does today. And what I would like to do now is I would, like Isaiah did centuries ago, I want to draw your attention to Jesus. Would you consider with me, number one, behold the willing bearer of our griefs. We have to acknowledge the relationship between him and us. Look at verse four. And look for the pronouns. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken of God and afflicted. Look down to verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. Where is it? It's upon who? Do you see it? Upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. There's a relationship between him and us. And Isaiah is calling us to behold, to stare at the spectacle of our suffering Christ. In fact, the larger section of scripture begins back in chapter 52 in verse 13 with the word behold. Isaiah the prophet is calling his audience to come and see something. The term calls the attention specifically in verse 15 of some Gentile kings. By the way, these are kings who haven't even have been born yet. Or maybe they're just now been born on the earth. These are people way off in the distance from Isaiah when he's writing. And he calls them to look at Messiah. And when these kings see Messiah, it says they're astonished. 
They, they actually put their hands on their mouth. They're just taken back. And I think their astonishment, if you see this in verse 14, they were astonished at the suffering servant, at the Messiah. It's because they were astonished that people in Jesus' day were incapable of seeing who he evidently was, even though he was living right in front of them. That they would not believe that Messiah would suffer. And so they're astonished. And can I tell you something, friends? We should be astonished that our neighbors, that our friends, that our family members, that our co-workers, even a person sitting here is not a follower of Jesus. That they cannot see what he has done for them. The term surely reinforces this word behold, reinforces this attention. And our thoughts now should be on the fact that this tender plant, this Messiah, this root grown out of a dry ground, the man of sorrows, the one who's acquainted with grief, that he has done something. This is the he, the Messiah, the suffering servant. This is Jesus. And seeing Jesus suffer should cause us to question, why? Why did he suffer? And here, the relationship between him and us becomes self-evident. He emerges as the righteous one. He suffers, not for his own sin. He sorrows, but not because he deserved to suffer. Rather, he is the righteous, suffering for the unrighteous. And so now the pronouns are important. On Jesus' side, he and him and his. And on our side, we and our and us. And on his side is righteousness and truth and goodness and, and love. And on our side, it's all negative. It's all bad. Transgressions, iniquities, wickedness, and sin. And so the Lord suffers for our sins. My friends, we call this vicarious atonement. Vicarious. He takes our place. He actually becomes the sin bearer and takes our sins upon himself. That's what Jesus does when he dies. The great exchange is taking place. All of our sin is transferred to him. All of his righteousness is transferred to us. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to witness to somebody. If I'm sitting at a table, usually there's salt and pepper, and I'll take the pepper, it's black, and I'll say this pepper represents my sin. And this salt, this represents the righteousness of Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of my pepper, all of my sin upon himself. And I just crossed my arm. And, he t and all of his righteousness he gave to me. That's the exchange. That's the grand exchange. And so those who have accepted him as Savior have this relationship eternally sealed, forever sealed. The righteousness is forever transferred to us. This is why I don't have to get saved every other moment of the day. You have to get saved every time you sin. Why, well, you'd have to be getting saved all the time. 
This is why, because when Jesus died on the cross, He took my sins eternally, past, present, future, and He took the ordinance written against us, and He nailed it to His cross. He took it so that and bore it so I would not have to bear it. So that He will now always be our Savior. Always mine. And He will eternally bear the scars of our sins in Himself. My friends, if you think about this relationship that we have between us, then will you willing, consider His willingness to carry our sin burden? This is what He did. But he didn't do it because he was forced to do it. He did it because he wanted to do it. He was wounded. That idea is pierced for our transgressions. Bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of, of our peace. To, to bring peace, he was chastised. And, and to be healed, he was stricken. He takes our pain upon himself. Physically, he was pierced on our behalf. Isaiah here describes the suffering of Jesus more than most of the biblical books. Most of the Old Testament books for sure. If you go back to chapter 50, it refers to the Messiah in verse 6 as the one who gave his back to the smiters, his cheeks to those who pluck out the hair that he was spitten on. They spat on him. They hated him. Jesus was physically pierced because we sin. And he was emotionally crushed for us. The Lord's suffering wasn't just external, it was internal. And if you think about what he did just hours before his death on the cross, when he sat there with his disciples with grapes in the cup, and he took either a piece of rock or his own hand, and he crushed those grapes to make a little bit of juice, and he drank that fresh juice of the vine. When he did that and crushed those grapes, he was illustrating the very thing that would happen to him in just a matter of minutes. He would be crushed. His lifeblood would be spilled. Because it's what we deserve. And if you think about this, his wounding and his bruising, then think about what it brings. He takes our pain on himself willingly and, and beyond that, willingly now provides the comfort that we need. This is amazing. Because he was chastised, here's the Hebrew word, friends, we have shalom. It's more than just a sense of well-being, you know, like you get with laughing gas at the dentist. It's, it's not that. It's so much greater. Shalom is the whole sense, the wholeness, the completeness of Christ. The, the unity and the peace that God has with his own son transferred to us so that we now have peace. This is an exchange for his emotional suffering. 
being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies with him. And because he was beaten, we have healing. This spiritual healing corresponds to his physical suffering. He dies so that we can live. Not physically live, spiritually live. And I think the application of this is that when you stop, when you just step back and like those ladies who loved Jesus, who stood far off from the cross, who could see Jesus, but he was, he was a distance away, who mourned for him. His mother was there. Mary Magdalene was there. Those other ladies, as they stood there, if you'll stand for a moment and you'll just behold that, then, then you realize you now are watching and seeing the very sight God wants you to see so that you can now conclude Jesus suffers because our words are so often unkind and even bitter toward others. He's in pain because of our petty jealousies as we compare ourselves with each other. He hangs there because we covet the things of earth. He bleeds because we lust. His skin is torn because we're disobedient. His face is marred because of our arrogance. He, his breaths are shallow because of our selfishness. He dies because we are sinners. This is the willingness of the Christ to carry our sin burden. And once you see him there, Suffering for us on the cross. Would you think and consider, second, that all of it was intentional? This is the second point. I want you to consider the intentional transaction between him and us. Verse 5. There are two here in verse, uh, rather verses 5 and 6, but I, I want to just focus on verse 6. You see in verse 6, do you see two deliberate actions going on here? The first deliberate action is... We deliberately did what? Turned away from him. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Every one of us has done this. Not just a few, not even many, or most. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. There is none righteous. No, not one. We all are like the sheep who go astray. I, I told you this a few months back. A pastor friend of mine posted something on social media, a little video of a farmer, a shepherd. And he's, underneath it said, this is what it means to be a pastor. And, and it showed, the beginning of the video shows a man pulling a sheep out of a ditch. The sheep was headfirst in a ditch and couldn't get out. If, 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 if the shepherd isn't there, the sheep's going to die. And he pulls on the sheep's leg, and the sheep is set free. And it takes a little bit of time to do that. And the sheep kind of wriggles his foot away from the shepherd. And then he goes bound, 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 whoop, and then right back, head first into the ditch. And the pastor friend said, this is what it means to be a pastor. And we laugh at that because it's kind of humorous. Do you know why God compares us to sheep? I had a church member years ago. Most of you probably don't know him. He's not been here in a long, 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 long time. 
He actually said to me on the phone, I don't like you calling us sheep. I said, well, what would you like me to do? What, one of the, the word for pastor. Do you know what the word for pastor means? Shepherd. What do shepherds do? They take care of sheep. I said, I'm sorry, you're a sheep. There's just no way around it. You just, you know, bah, you know, you might as well just accept it. It made him mad. He was, he, he ended the phone call upset. I don't like you calling me that. I'm not a sheep. Well, then you're not of the Lord's. You're a goat. That's the other designation. You're either a sheep or a goat. Why does God call a sheep? Because surprisingly, and I read this text, don't you see here as the way he's saying this? Wouldn't you assume you get to verse six and he says, so all we like sheep love the shepherd. We all of us have turned to the shepherd and said, we love you, shepherd. Thank you for leading us beside the still waters. Thank you for leading us to the green pastures. Thank you for protecting us from the lions and the bears and the wolves. Thank you for giving your life for us. Wouldn't you kind of expect that to be here? But the deliberate action is not a turning toward Jesus. Isaiah says, we have turned away from him. If you have a natural expectation that the, the prophet would say we would accept him, he says, no, the first response to Christ is rejection. And if you go back to verse 2, you understand why. He didn't appear to be worthy of consideration. It says he wasn't physically attractive. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He's not majestic in, its, in his appearance. Literally, he's nothing special to look at. And he was intentionally ignored, verse 3, considered by the masses to be worthless. He was forsaken. He was shunned. He was held in low esteem. And that doesn't mean that every single time Christ is preached and you have somebody who hears it for the first time, their first reaction is going to be rejection. I don't mean that. I'm just saying as mankind, the first reaction mankind as a general rule had to their creator giving himself for them was to say, not for me, to turn away. And instead of embracing, embracing the Lord, he says in verse 3, we despise him. He's despised. We're like sheep wandering off from the shepherd. It's a natural action for sheep. They often make the foolish choice. They often make the dangerous choice. And that demonstrates the intentional nature of our sin. It's a universal trait of all. If you can't accept that you are unrighteous in and of yourselves, friends, then you aren't saved. You are still under the wrath of God and you are still liable for hell and judgment and the lake of fire. Because the first thing a believer does in coming to Christ is admit, I can't save myself. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I haven't been able to reach God's righteous standard. 
And when, like all men, presented Christ in my natural state, I would leave and go my own way. That's who I am. But thank God, he doesn't let us just walk away, does he? Even as we deliberately turned away from him, God deliberately turned our sins onto him. Do you see there at the end of verse 6? And the Lord hath laid on this servant, on this, this Messiah, our iniquity, the iniquity of us all. The father scourged his son because of us. The word laid has the sense of striking something violently. He suffers shame. He suffers punishment that I deserve, that should have been mine. God lays this burden onto Jesus. So it's not just that Jesus willingly carries my sin burden. It's that the Father deliberately put it on him. That God the Father said, you will carry this. And he carries the awful weight of our sins on his own back. That's what crushes him. That's what bruises him. And thus the Lord becomes sin bearer. His soul is made an offering for sin. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Or as my friend Chris Anderson wrote, Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone. I should have been the one who was accursed. You should have been the one left alone. But Jesus was the one who was accursed because God deemed it so. This is his intentional action in response to our sinfulness. It was because of our iniquities. He bore himself in himself, it, it, our sins in his own body on the tree. Or you remember the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I preach to you the gospel. Christ died for our sins because of our sins. This is God's solution. His solution isn't to tell you that you need to go to church all the time. His solution isn't to tell you to be a better person. His solution isn't that you're part of a family that claims to be Christian. His solution isn't that you're white or that you're some other race. There are people through the history of the world who've said, because I am of this race, God loves me better. It's not any of those things. His solution was to destroy his own son on a Roman cross, that he would bear your sins. That was God's solution. And how amazing that he purposed to do this before he created the very first Adam before he laid the foundations of the earth. This was his plan. Or you can think of it this way, before the foundations of the earth were laid, our sins in his plans were laid upon the Savior's back. So my question for you is, are you bearing your own griefs or is he? If you don't know him, you're bearing your own griefs. You, you're bearing your own sorrows. You will sorrow. 
you will grieve. You will grind your teeth at him. If you don't know him as your savior, then, then you still remain under your own sin. So have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Are you submitting yourself to the claims of the gospel on your life? Do you admit, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. Jesus died to save me from my sins. And I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Is that what you are believing and doing right now? Or are you still running from him? Do you still despise and reject him? Second, because he bears our griefs and we have peace with God and he carries our heavy load, the load of our sin, how terrible if we still intentionally turn from him? How terrible is that? You say, I'm saved, pastor. I know Christ is my Savior. Should you continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How much we cheapen His grace when we act as if it's no big deal. Or as one lady I heard would say after she sinned, an older woman, by the way, and a woman in her 70s committing adultery, if you can imagine, who would say after committing adultery, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he has to forgive. No. You're cheap in the grace of God. You mock his death. How terrible that we intentionally still turn from him from time to time. How terrible that the only way back was for God to crush our Savior. If you're a believer, your attitude should be, because he died for me, I love him. Because he took my sins upon himself, I love him and I, and I want to please him with my life. It doesn't mean by pleasing him, you'll earn his favor. It doesn't mean by obeying him, he'll give you extra grace. But if you know him, you should want to please him. You should want to bring him joy. I, a few months back, I apparently ruined the ending of the Tale of Two Cities for some of our high school students. They have, they have to read that in high school. And I gave it away. I'm really sorry about that. Not too sorry, a little sorry. What there really is in the writer's mind of that, of that book, pretty powerful book, there really is no better way of describing what the main character does when he gives up his life for the life of another. When he goes to his death so that the other person could marry his, his own beloved. And he showed that kind of love for another. And I think probably when the author was writing A Tale of Two Cities, he was actually thinking no greater love than this, than a man should give his life for his friend. That's what Jesus did for us. He has borne 
our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. It's a beautiful scripture. It's been preached on throughout the years, thousands upon thousands of times. And I'm sure in the annals of all the preachers who've used this text, my sermon wouldn't be at the top. That's not what's most important here. What's most important is that your Holy Spirit does what he does in the hearts of people. That you take your word and impress it like a great stamp. That you impress upon us these words so they become a part of us. So that in joyful grief we can lift our praise. Abhorring our sin and adoring our Savior. Help us, Lord, to do that. Now, maybe you're here before I finish praying and you don't know Christ. I can't imagine somebody being in our church growing up here and leaving here and not knowing Christ. My friends, you are guilty before God hundreds of times over if you have rejected the gospel over and over. You must be born again. And if you're here and you've heard the gospel one time, a hundred times, doesn't matter. If you heard, then God expects you to respond in faith. And maybe you're here right now and I have all compassion for you. You're not sure you're saved. You don't know. But you want to know. You want to nail it down and just be certain that if you die today, you go to be with God. And if you're here, you say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Would you slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Anybody, just slip it up quickly. No one's looking. Just slip it up real quick. Do it. Don't, don't delay. Who will say, Pastor, pray for me? I'm not saved. Maybe you're here and you are a believer, but your life, if others knew what's going on, you'd be ashamed. And you read this story of, of Jesus taking your sins upon his own back. And it shames you. He knows what's been going on in your heart. The things you've written and posted online that nobody else knows. He knows the sins of your mind. If you're a believer and that's where you're at, will you just stop for a moment and say, I don't want my life to cheapen grace. I don't want to live that way at all. I want to live right before him. Doesn't mean you will all the time. I know that. But that's where your heart is. And right now, as, as I was preaching, God's spirit was kind of just knocking on the door of your heart, saying, hey, you, you've been cheapening my grace. I've done all this for you. What are you doing in return? Living sinfully? If that's where you're at, I want to pray for you. Would you slip up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. There are some things in my life that need to change. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you, young man. Anybody else? Who else? Pastor, pray for me. 
Pastor, pray for me. I saw another hand. Thank you. I'll pray for you. Oh God, please use this message to draw us closer to you, whether unsaved or saved. Help us to be humble, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because you will exalt us in due time. I pray that you'd help us to do that. And you've seen the hands, you see the hearts here. Lord, speak to each person, but especially those who've asked for prayer. Give them your grace and your mercy to repent and to turn away from sin and to do right. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. As she plays, you go to God in prayer.